Hello, listeners. If you are enjoying this podcast without commercial interruption and are financially able, please consider supporting our effort. To contribute, go to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby lights, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Listen, uh... Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. It's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you are listening to episode number 369 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 17. Mankind's last giant leap. The eyes of the world now look into space, to the moon, and to the planets beyond. On the 25th of May, 1961, President John F. Kennedy of the United States of America committed the resources of his nation and launched Project Apollo, the greatest technological undertaking in the history of mankind. I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the earth. Ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. This was the race to space, working to beat the Russians, and the enthusiasm was absolutely tremendous. People were absolutely glued to their televisions. It was a transformative event in human history. The Eagle has landed. One-fifth of humanity watched Neil Armstrong's footsteps in 1969. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. For one priceless moment in the whole history of man, all the people on this earth are truly one. But only two years later, in 1972, public and political interest in Apollo had dwindled. NASA was forced to cancel their last three missions, making Apollo 17 man's final mission to the moon. Astronauts Eugene Cernan, Harrison Schmidt, and Ronald Evans were the three brave men chosen to fly NASA's final mission. They have been written up in history books and acknowledged by the space and scientific communities, but have never received the public recognition they truly deserved. Yet Apollo 17's voyage to the moon was the crowning glory of man's lunar exploration. Apollo 17 broke so many records. 
spent three days on the lunar surface. Their moonwalks lasted eight hours. They covered a greater distance than any other mission. The scientific legacy of Apollo 17 has been enormous. Had Apollo 17 not happened when it did, I shudder to think really what textbooks would have to say even now about the early history of the solar system. Yeah, I covered ground like a kangaroo. <laughs> Apollo 17 did mark the end of an era. Since then, we haven't travelled into space as far. Apollo 17 is the hidden jewel of the US lunar space program. The world knows how the Apollo program began, but very few truly understand how it ended. This is the remarkable story of the determination and courage of a generation. A tribute to three brave astronauts and the thousands of men and women behind them during the final days of NASA's Apollo program. Our here man completed his first exploration of the moon. In the spirit of peace of all mankind. That fine intro came from the documentary the untold story of the last man on the moon. Mankind's final giant leap would be the most impressive and ambitious. The mission would break several crude spaceflight records, including the longest moon mission duration, 12 days, 13 hours, 52 minutes, just one and a third day shorter than the 14 days set in 1965 by Gemini 7. The longest total lunar surface extravehicular activities, 22 hours and 4 minutes. The largest lunar sample return, 110.5 kilograms or 243.7 pounds. The longest time in lunar orbit, six days and four hours, and the most lunar orbits, 75, to name a few. For such a prestigious and important mission, a unique and meaningful mission insignia was chosen for Apollo 17. The most prominent feature is an image of the Greek sun god Apollo backdropped by a rendering of an American eagle the red bars of the eagle mirroring those on the flag of the United States. Three white stars above the red bars represent the three crewmen of the mission. The background includes the moon, the planet Saturn, and a galaxy or nebula. The wing of the eagle partially overlays the moon, suggesting man's established presence there. The gaze of Apollo and the direction of the eagle's motion embody man's intention to explore further destinations in space. The patch includes, along with the colors of the U.S. flag, red, white, and blue, the color gold, representative of a golden age of spaceflight that was to begin with Apollo 17. The image of Apollo in the mission insignia 
is a rendering of the Apollo Belvedere sculpture. The insignia was designed by Robert McCall with input from the crew of Apollo 17. Since this was the last human moonshot, the landing site was considered very carefully. High-priority landing sites that had not been visited previously were given consideration for potential exploration. Some sites were rejected at earlier stages. Thus, a landing in the crater Copernicus was rejected because Apollo 12 had already obtained samples from that impact, and three other Apollo expeditions had already visited the vicinity of Mare Imbrium. A landing in the lunar highlands near the crater Tycho was rejected because of the rough terrain found there. A landing in a region southwest of Mare Crisium was rejected on the grounds that a Soviet spacecraft could easily access the site. In fact, Luna 21 eventually did so shortly after the Apollo 17 site selection was made. Jack Smith, the respected geologist and one of the moonwalkers on this mission, wanted to land on the far side of the moon in the crater Tiakovsky. In fact, over the past two years, Jack argued previous missions had adequately explored the front side and the final flight should take advantage of an opportunity that would not come again for many years. Such a dramatic scheme might have been wonderful for a scientist, but it was somewhat lacking in operational common sense. For such a landing would leave the astronauts totally out of communication with Houston. To solve this problem, Smith suggested putting a satellite into stationary orbit around the moon, keeping it constantly overhead to bounce radio transmissions to and from Houston. Jack had gone so far as to identify the hardware needed and even the projected cost, just to prove it could be done. This bold and dangerous mission proposal did not have the support of the mission commander, Gene Cernan, but Smith ignored him and took his campaign straight to the top ranks of NASA management where his plan was summarily dismissed due to technical considerations and the operational cost of maintaining communication during surface operations. Additionally, Commander Gene Cernan was told to get his subordinate in line and keep him there. After the elimination of all these sites, three sites made the final consideration for Apollo 17. Alphonus Crater, Gassendi Crater, and the Taurus-Litro Valley. In making the final landing site decision, mission planners took into consideration the primary objectives for Apollo 17, obtaining old highlands material from a substantial distance from Mare Imbrium, sampling material from young volcanic activity, young meaning less than 3 billion years old, and having minimal ground overlap 
with the orbital ground tracks of Apollo 15 and 16 to maximize the amount of new data obtained. The Taurus Littrow site was selected with the prediction that the crew would be able to obtain samples of old highland material from the remnants of a landslide event that occurred on the south wall of the valley and the possibility of relatively young, explosive volcanic activity in the area. Although the valley was similar to the landing site of Apollo 15, in that it was on the border of a lunar mare, the advantages of Taurus Latreau were believed to outweigh the drawbacks, thus leading to its selection as the Apollo 17 landing site. Taurus Litro was the most dangerous landing site of the entire Apollo program. Although the risks taken to land in the Taurus Litro Valley were great, the payoff was the opportunity to sample a larger and more diverse selection of geological material than ever before. Boy, is that pretty inside. Woo! We haven't seen anything like this. I haven't. Unless you've been holding out on me. The samples returned would contain rock both older and younger than that of any other Apollo mission. Taurus Littrow Valley was selected because it was a diverse site geologically. Within an easy driving distance of the landing site, there are these highland blocks, the North Massif and the South Massif. These highland blocks were formed as mountains. Orbital imagery based on photographs taken by Apollo 15 had demonstrated the existence of uh, boulders which had rolled down the mountains from high up on the slopes where they'd carved tracks. And so accessing these boulders that had rolled down the massifs became a high priority. In addition to these boulders, a small fault runs across the valley called the Lee Lincoln Scarp, which it was considered would be of geological interest. And there was a landslide of clearly light-coloured highland material which had fallen off the South Massif mountain and covered the valley floor. So all in all, it was a very geologically diverse valley where a lot could be explored in the time available to the astronauts uh, with their lunar roving vehicle. Now a few details about the landing site. Taurus Latreau is a lunar valley located on the near side of the moon at the coordinates 20 degrees north, 31 degrees east. The valley is situated on the southeastern edge of the Mare Serenitatis, along a ring of mountains apparently formed between 3.8 and 3.9 billion years ago when a large object impacted the moon forming the Serenitatis Basin and pushing rock outward and upward. The dominant features of the landing site are three rounded hills, or massifs, surrounding the relatively flat target point and a range of what lunar geologists describe as sculptured hills. Data collected during Apollo 17 would indicate that this valley is composed primarily of feldspar-rich breccia in the large masses surrounding the valley and basalt underlying the valley floor, covered by an unconsolidated layer of mixed material formed by various geologic events. Now on to the mission. Apollo 17 would be the 11th crewed mission in the United States Apollo Space Program, 
the sixth and final to land on the moon, and the third of Apollo's so-called J missions. This time, the crew will consist of three humans and five live mice. Like previous Apollo missions, Apollo 17 would be launched from the Kennedy Space Center in Florida. Apollo 17 was planned for a spectacular night launch, scheduled on December 6, 1972, and NASA said it would be visible to people on a large portion of the eastern seaboard. But the launch did not go off quite as scheduled. Apollo 17 would gather information on yet another type of geological formation and add to the network of automatic scientific stations. The Taurus-Latrobe landing site offered a combination of mountainous highlands and valley lowlands from which to sample surface materials. The Apollo 17 Lunar Surface Experiments Package, ALSEP, would have four experiments never before flown, and this ALSEP would become the fifth in the Lunar Surface Scientific Station Network. The three basic objectives of Apollo 17 were to explore and sample the materials and surface features at Taurus Latrobe, to set up and activate experiments on the lunar surface for long-term relay of data, and to conduct in-flight experiments and photographic tasks. The scientific experiment module bay in the service module was, once again, the heart of the in-flight experiment effort on Apollo 17. The sim bay contained three new experiments never flown before, in addition to high-resolution and mapping cameras for photographing and measuring properties of the lunar surface and the environment around the moon. While in lunar orbit, Command Module Pilot Evans would have the responsibility for operating the in-flight experiments during the time his crewmates were on the lunar surface. During the homeward coast, after trans-Earth injection, Evans would perform an in-flight EVA, hand-over-hand back to the Simbay to retrieve film cassettes from the Simbay and pass them back into the cabin for return to Earth. The range of exploration and geological investigations made by Cernan and Smith at Taurus Latrobe again would be extended by the electric-powered lunar roving vehicle. Cernan and Smith would conduct three seven-hour EVAs. Apollo 17 would spend an additional two days in lunar orbit after the landing crew returned from the surface. The period would be spent in conducting orbital science experiments and expanding the fun of high-resolution photography of the moon's surface. During their 75 hours on the lunar surface, Cernan and Smith would conduct three seven-hour periods of exploration, sample, collecting, and emplacing the Apollo Lunar Surface Experiments Package. The ALSEP Experiment Package was powered by a nuclear generator and will be deployed and set into operation during the first EVA. 
while the second and third EVAs would be devoted mainly to geological exploration and sample collection. Using the lunar roving vehicle, the crew would travel more than 35 kilometers, or 22 miles, which is more ground than all previous flights. Attached to a mount on the front of the rover would be a color television camera, which could be aimed and focused remotely from the Mission Control Center. Cameras were also operated by Cernan and Smith, which would further record the characteristics of the landing site to aid in post-flight geological analysis. Data would be collected on the composition, density, and constituents of the lunar atmosphere and a temperature profile of the lunar surface. Cernan and Smith would collect over 240 pounds of lunar samples for return to Earth. While his crewmates were on the lunar surface, Command Module Pilot Ron Evans would orbit the moon in the Command and Service Module to perform photographic and visual observations and experiments along the Command Module's ground track. A geological cross-section to a depth of 1.3 kilometers would be gathered by instruments in the service module's scientific instrument bay. Evan's solo flight was expected to be over three days. After Cernan and Smith rejoined Evans in lunar orbit, the crew would release a subsatellite and the service module. During the return trip to Earth, Evans would perform a one-hour spacewalk to retrieve several full cassettes from the exterior of the service module. Command module splashdown would be in the Pacific southeast of Samoa sometime in the afternoon of December 19th. There, the spacecraft and crew would once again be recovered by the USS Ticonderoga. Communication call signs used for Apollo 17 were America for the command module and Challenger for the lunar module. During docked operations and after lunar module jettison, the call sign was simply Apollo 17. Now let's move on to crew selection. Similarly to previous missions, crew selection was complicated filled with drama, disappointment, and joy. In 1969, NASA announced the backup crew for Apollo 14 slated to fly in 1971. This was Eugene Cernan, Ronald Evans, and former X-15 pilot Joe Engel, whose 16 flights in the X-15 had three times taken him past the 50-mile, 80-kilometer border of space. Since the Apollo program generally slated a backup crew to fly as prime crew three missions later, Cernan, Evans, and Engel were in line to be prime crew for Apollo 17. Meanwhile, Harrison Smith, a professional geologist, was assigned to the backup crew of Apollo 15 and slated to fly as lunar module pilot on Apollo 18. However, Apollo 18 was canceled in September 1970. 
The scientific community subsequently put an enormous amount of pressure on NASA to find a way to assign a geologist instead of just a pilot with geology training to an Apollo landing. After all, the Apollo program was supposed to be all about science, right? NASA headquarters wanted Harrison Smith as the lunar module pilot for Apollo 17. That opened the question of who would fill the two other Apollo 17 slots. Should it be the rest of the Apollo 15 backup crew, which was Dick Gordon and Vance Brand, or should it be Apollo 14's backup crew minus Joe Engel? NASA Director of Flight Crew Operations Deke Slayton made an attempt to keep Cernan, Evans, and Engel on Apollo 17, but headquarters in Washington refused. It was made very clear to Slayton that the only name headquarters in Washington absolutely demanded to see on the crew list for Apollo 17 was Dr. Harrison H. Jack Smith. The geologist must fly. Deke still wanted the Apollo 14 backup crew to go, so he changed his request to Cernan, Smith, and Evans, which Washington approved. Headquarters didn't really seem to care as long as Smith got his trip to the moon. This meant Joe Engel would lose his only opportunity to go to the moon. Cernan was crushed at the thought of his team being broken up. Engel had worked hard for the lunar module pilot job, and they had spent so many long months together in the lunar module flight simulator that they understood the nuances of each other's personality and the inflections of their voices. They could react instinctively to what the other man did in a critical situation. And Gene was very concerned that he could ever have that same kind of rapport with anyone from whom flying was not a first love. But he was forced to bet his life on a choice mandated by Washington. Cernan made one more impassioned plea to Deke to swap Engel for Smith. He pointed out that since the Gemini program, they always flown spacecraft with at least two pilots. Jack Smith had never flown anything before joining the program. Sure, Jack had done a good job learning how to fly little T-38 trainers, but Engel was an X-15 pilot. In the end, Deke told Gene that Jack was going to fly, and he had two choices. Take the flight with Jack as his lunar module pilot, or step aside, and Deke would rotate Dick Gordon's entire crew into Apollo 17. Gene had to decide whether or not he wanted to walk on the moon, and Deke demanded an immediate answer. More than anything, Gene wanted to go to the moon, so he decided he would fly with Smith. Therefore, 
The prime crew for Apollo 17 was Eugene A. Cernan, Commander, Ronald E. Evans, Command Module Pilot, and Harrison H. Smith, Lunar Module Pilot. Cernan previously flew in space aboard Gemini 9 and Apollo 10, while Apollo 17 was the first flight into space for Evans and Smith. Cernan held the rank of Captain, and Evans was a commander in the U.S. Navy. With the crew selected, now it was Gene's duty to tell his friend Joe that he wasn't going to the moon with him. To his credit, Joe took the bad news with grace, having figured out on his own that he wasn't going. It had been no secret that Smith's star had been rising as the Apollo flights were trimmed back. So Joe reluctantly set his sights on the future. By the time he retired, he was a major general in the Air Force and commanded the second space shuttle mission. There was also drama with the backup crew for Apollo 17. At first, the Apollo 15 Prime crew received the backup crew assignment since this was to be the last lunar mission and the backup crew would not rotate to another mission. However, when the Apollo 15 postage stamp incident became public in early 1972, the crew was reprimanded by NASA and the United States Air Force. They were, after all, active duty officers. So, Deke Slayton removed them from flight status and replaced them with Young and Duke from the Apollo 16 Prime Crew and Rusa from the Apollo 14 Prime Crew. Okay, that completes the introduction to Apollo 17. Now let's begin our crew biographies with Ron Evans. Hello there, I'm astronaut Ron Evans. On December 6, 1972, I was command module pilot of Apollo 17, the last space flight to the moon. During this flight, I logged 301 hours and 51 minutes in space, one hour and six minutes of which were EVA outside the spacecraft. Ronald Elwin Evans, Jr. was born on November 10, 1933 in St. Francis, Kansas to parents Clarence Elwin Evans and Marie A. Evans. He had two siblings, Larry Joe Evans and Jay Evans. He was active in the Boy Scouts of America, where he achieved its second highest rank of Life Scout. He graduated from Highland Park High School in Topeka, Kansas in 1951. He received a Bachelor of Science degree in Electrical Engineering from the University of Kansas in 1956 and a Master of Science degree in Aeronautical Engineering from the U.S. Naval Postgraduate School in 1964. He was a member of Tau Beta Pi Society of Sigma Psi and Sigma Nu. In June 1957, Ron completed flight training after receiving his commission as an ensign through the Navy ROTC program at the University of Kansas. 
Upon receiving his aviator wings in 1962, he was a fighter pilot with Fighter Squadron 142, serving on two aircraft carriers in the Pacific Ocean. Then he became a combat flight instructor for the F-8 aircraft with Fighter Squadron 124. From 1964 to 1966, Evans was on sea duty in the Pacific, assigned to Fighter Squadron 51, flying F-8 Crusaders from the carrier USS Ticonderoga. During this assignment, he completed a seven-month tour of duty flying combat missions in the Vietnam War. He was with Squadron 51 when he was selected as an astronaut in April 1966. In total, Evans logged 5,100 hours of flight time, including 4,600 hours in jet aircraft. Evans began his NASA career when he was selected as one of the 19 astronauts chosen by NASA in April 1966. He served as a member of the astronaut support crews for the Apollo 7 and Apollo 11 flights and as backup command module pilot for Apollo 14. Evans' only space flight was as command module pilot of Apollo 17, the last scheduled U.S. crewed mission to the moon. When Evans was assigned to Apollo 17, the attention was immense on both Evans and his family. Some of that attention was of a negative sort. The group, Black September, had made a threat on the families of the Apollo 17 crews. So, when Ron left for quarantine before his flight, his family had security out in front of their house 24 hours a day. You may recall that Black September was the group that had wreaked havoc with the Olympics in Germany in 1972. During the flight of Apollo 17, Evans found himself caught in somewhat of a crisis. He lost his scissors. Each crew member was assigned a pair, and they were crucial as Evans needed them to rip open food packets. After all, he would be alone in orbit for three days while his two crewmates were on the surface. Evans said he lost the scissors during his first sleep. He woke up in the morning, and they simply weren't there. The crew searched extensively for the scissors, but did not find them. In the end, his two moon-bound crewmates left a pair of their own scissors behind before leaving for lunar surface exploration. Jack Smith joked that they compromised their activities on the lunar surface for a pair of scissors, saying half of Mission Control's mandate was to make sure they didn't lose the remaining pair. But during the first moonwalk, the scissors fell out of the bag and they were laying there in the dirt. Cernan added, they were in the dirt and had something covering them up. But they found them. Scissors didn't cover all of Evans' problems in orbit. One time he radioed Houston during his solo flight, Man, I stink! Woo! Ron seemed to have a fun personality. 
Here's a clip of him describing life in zero-G. Now, there's a lot of differences now between what it's like up there in space and what it's like down here on the Earth. And one of the biggest differences, uh, we left it off in the middle of the night, and so we had a relatively short day, and it came time to get ready to go to bed again. And as soon as you get ready to sleep up there in zero-G, you kind of look around, you know, and, and uh, you think to yourself, now, let's see, do I float on my right side? Do I float on my left side? Do I float on my back? I think what it really amounts to is, where's my huggy pillow, you know? <laughs> While you're up there. Now, as a kind of a crutch, uh, we had some vertical supports inside there, so you'd wrap your arm around one of those vertical supports, clamp your fingers together, and just lean your head up against the uh, couch front, you know, and just kind of go to sleep that way. But after a while, I said, hey, wait a minute. I'm really up here as an astronaut. Let's really do it. So all you have to do when you get ready to go to sleep, you just kind of fold your arms a little bit. Your knees will bend naturally. Close your eyes and go to sleep. However, now, just like down here on the Earth, same thing up in zero-G. You kind of toss and turn while you're sleeping up there, see? And every time, you don't wake up, but every time you toss and turn, you bump into something. And you'll bounce off in one direction or another crazy direction. You know, in the, warm, in the morning when you wake up now, your feet will be up in the tunnel maybe, or your head will be back down underneath the couches, or perish the thought you might even be smuggled up next to those other guys you're flying with. <laughs> something else is a little different too, when you get up the next morning. Uh, down here on the earth, no matter how big a person you think you are, everybody puts their pants on one leg at a time, right? Not so in zero G. See, you get up in the morning, just hold your pants out in front of you, you kind of push off with both feet at the same time, and they go, you know, and, and pull your pants on, you know? <laughs> man, oh man. You know, something else now uh, that's a little bit different up there is eating in space. Uh, as you all, I'm sure, recall and know, the food is packaged in kind of a little plastic bag, and it's all a freeze-dried type of food. So somehow you have to get water inside that bag to mix with the food. So NASA designed a little uh, kind of a nipple on the one corner of the bag. And then they space qualified, so they encase it in a kind of a triangular piece of plastic. So in order to get in there, the first thing you've got to do, you want to undo that plastic and then take your water gun and put it in there. So you reach in your back pocket, you get your scissors, and you, you cut around that little nipple. The first time I did that, what happened is I had a little triangular piece of plastic and it was floating all over, you know, creating junk all over the spacecraft. So after what, very quickly, you learn you, you just cut it around part way around and kind of let it hang there, see? Like that. And then every, all the junk's all hooked up together. So then you reach up and you get your water gun, take your water gun, and stick it in this little nipple, go quick, quick, quick. Give it three squirts of water, or four, or whatever it say. It says right on the side of the bag how many you're supposed to get. <laughs> but you still end up with three round spears of water in one end of the bag, and the food is still in the other end of the bag. See? So what you've got to do is take the bag and you smush it around, you know, you shake it, you know, shake it up, and it turns to potato soup or tomato soup or doesn't make a difference what it started out to be. It all ends up soup, you know. Uh, <laughs> but it's still inside the bag. So then you've got to kind of hold the bag sideways, reach in your back pocket again, get your scissors out, and you you cut open the top of the bag. And then you've got a bowl of soup sitting there. And you get in your back pocket again, get your spoon, just a plain old uh, soup spoon, 
very carefully, dip it down into your bowl of soup, get a little bit of soup on the spoon, and then reach up and take a bite that way. After a while, I said, hey, wait a minute. I'm in zero gravity now. And there isn't any up, and there isn't any down either, see? So it's the greatest delight while you're having your soup. You can turn your bowl upside down. <laughs> it won't come out. Stick your spoon in the bottom of it, you know? And just kind of float it around, get a little bit of soup on your spoon, you know? And just float around, take a bite that way. <laughs> a lot of fun. It takes a long time to eat up there, but it's a lot of fun, too. Uh, <laughs> I have uh, reached the statute of limitations on a secret that we've had throughout all of the space program. That secret is how do you go to the bathroom in zero gravity? <laughs> Tonight I can let you know. <laughs> now, as you all know, there are two ways, right? <laughs> now, that's right. Now, <laughs> now the first way, <laughs> number one, is through a hollow tube that has a little rubber thing on one end of the tube and the other end of the tube is vented out through a hole in the spacecraft to the vacuum of space. Now, since it's a vacuum out there and there's a higher pressure on this end, <laughs> it creates a suction on the tube. <laughs> and <laughs> I think you're way ahead of me here. <laughs> now, Due to the suction, it must be done very, very carefully, I'll tell you. <laughs> now, the second way is with a, a plastic bag that's about uh, eight inches in diameter and maybe six or eight inches long. And it's open around one end of the bag. And on the outside of that eight-inch circular opening is a flap. And on the flap is some stickum. You, you all, I am sure, can guess where you put that stickum. <laughs> now, now you've heard of the saying that if you can design a better mousetrap, the world will beat a path to your door. Ladies and gentlemen, we need a better mousetrap for that operation, I'll tell you. <laughs> While on his solo flight, Evans in the command module, named America, completed assigned work tasks which required visual geological observations, handheld photography of specific targets, and the control of cameras and other highly sophisticated scientific equipment carried in the service module's SIMBAY. Evans was the last man to orbit the moon alone. Here's how he described his solo flight. They went down and picked up rocks, or whatever they do on the moon, you know. Uh, <laughs> and and, and uh, uh, I lit the engine on my spacecraft and went back up into a circular orbit that was 60 miles high all the way around as you're going around. And that's okay, except they left me all by myself for three and a half days. Let me take you with me on just one of those orbits as we go around. Now visualize yourselves 
We're going to start this orbit on the back side of the moon. That's a side you can't see. But we're in the sunshine. Sun is shining back there. And you might say, how's the sun shining on the back side? Uh, now visualize if you have, we'll say, you look, from here you look up the moon and you see a quarter moon, that means that three quarters of the backside is in the sunshine. So we're in that sunshine, see? And then as we continue around the backside of the moon, pretty soon, there's an earth rise. The earth comes up above the horizon, you know? And, and the round part of that crescent earth comes up above the horizon of the moon. And when that happens, we have line of sight communications with everybody down here on the earth. So I finally get a chance to talk to the people in Mission Control and say, hey, I did this and this and this and this. And they, they come back and say, well, you should have done this and this and this. <laughs> but anyhow, anyhow, we can talk to them, see? We, we, and, and I can talk to them, and, and uh, it's great. And then you continue on around the front side of the moon, and then pretty soon we pass out of that little crescent piece of the moon. That means the sun sets, see? So the sun disappears behind the moon. And then the only light you have up there is earth shine, earth light. See, the sun is shining on the earth, reflecting back up at the moon, and that earth shine was about four times as bright as the brightest moonlit night here on the earth. So I can look down at the moon, I can see the outlines of the craters and the valleys and, and uh, this type of thing. And then we will continue on around the front side of the moon now. And one hour after the earth came up, the earth sets. And when the Earth sets, again, the round part of that crescent Earth drops below the horizon of the moon and leaves the little two points of the crescent, and they go blink, blink. They disappear. Sun isn't shining. There's no Earth light. You have no communication with anyone on this Earth. And you are in the blackest black you could ever imagine. And yet over the radio, you hear this noise. And it goes, ooh, ooh, ooh. <laughs> I never did find out what that was either. <laughs> On the way back to Earth, Evans completed a one hour, six minutes extravehicular activity, successfully retrieving three camera cassettes and completing a personal inspection of the equipment bay area. It was the third deep space EVA and is the spacewalk performed at the greatest distance from any planetary body. As of 2021, it remains one of only three deep space EVAs, all made during the Apollo program's J missions. It was also the final spacewalk of the Apollo program. We had left the moon, and then the next day, uh, I had the opportunity to go outside the spacecraft to retrieve some film cassettes that were out there. And here we are, here we are 180,000 miles from the Earth. We're moving along at 10,000 miles an hour. And then we've got to put on those dirty old spacesuits uh, and get ready to go outside. You, you know, in those days, you'd open the hatch and, you know, everybody's out in the vacuum. So everybody's got to put on their spacesuits, uh, dirty old things, and get the zippers all lined up again. And then you have a test in there, and you turn a little valve, and, and it pumps you up again and makes you like a beetle uh, inside the spacesuit as it overpressurizes it to check out the pressure. And then everything looks good, so then you let the pressure back down again, and then you get ready to open and really go outside this time. And behind my head over here is a, is a valve, and you open that valve and just barely crack the valve and it sucks all the air uh, out of the spacecraft 
and the little space suits they pop up, you know, blow up again, and and, and then the, you still have the hatch there, so you check everything for a little while, and then you reach over and you, and the hatch goes open. Now comes the time you're going outside, and I'll tell you, if you ever want to be a spaceman, that's the time when you're out there in that vacuum of space, and the only thing between you and that and that vacuum is if you, is your spacesuit, and you can maneuver in those days just by hanging on to the side of the spacecraft and going hand over hand, never letting go of both hands at the same time. I'll tell you, <laughs> you know, but at least you were maneuvering around there, and you go down and pick up the film cassettes and, and come back in, and I did that three times. And then the third time, uh, you finally have a time to kind of relax a little bit. Hey, our mission is pretty well completed. I've got the third cassette uh, attached to my arm, and we're coming back in. And, and uh, I kind of relax a little bit, and you kind of look around. You know, what, is, what does it look like up there? What can you see? And, and, and off over to my left, there was a moon. And it was a full moon. Looked about the same size as it does from down here. And then over to my right, since we were between the Earth and the moon, was a crescent Earth. And, and the height of that crescent is four times as, height, as high as the diameter of the moon. And then 30 degrees or so off in that black infinity of space was a disk, an emphasized disk of a sun. You can't tell the sun is shining unless it reflects off of or hits a body up there. You know, it hits the moon or that crescent piece of the Earth or in that one little area down on my spacecraft where I was you know, going hand over hand back and forth down there. And when I was coming back in the, uh, the third time, as I mentioned, I finally looked down, and would you believe right there where that sun was shining on the spacecraft, painted down there below the hatch, was an American flag. And below that flag, it said, again painted in there, United States of America. I could not help but pause and reflect for a moment that your nation, my nation, through our endeavors and accomplishments in space during that period of time, created an unprecedented prestige in the eyes of the rest of the world. You know, I'm proud to be a part of that program, but I am even more proud to be an American. Thank you all. Good. Evans logged 301 hours and 51 minutes in space, one hour and six minutes of which were spent in extravehicular activity. He holds the record of the most time spent in lunar orbit, six days and four hours. That's 148 hours. After Apollo 17, Evans was later backup command module pilot for the 1975 Apollo-Soyuz test project. Evans retired from the U.S. Navy as a captain on April 30, 1976, with 21 years of service, and remained active as a NASA astronaut involved in the development of NASA's space shuttle program. He served as a member of the operations and training group within the astronaut office, responsible for launch and ascent phases of the Space Shuttle Flight Program. Evans retired from NASA in March 1977 to pursue a career in the coal industry. Later, he worked with Western American Energy Corporation in Scottsdale, Arizona, 
and was director of space systems marketing for Sperry Flight Systems. Sadly, he died in his sleep of a heart attack in Scottsdale, Arizona on April 7, 1990, and was survived by his widow, Jan, his daughter, Jamie D. Evans, and his son, John P. Evans. Ron Evans was buried at the Valley Presbyterian Church Memorial Garden in Paradise Valley, Arizona. During his career, he won many awards and honors. Evans was presented with the NASA Distinguished Service Medal in 1973, the Johnson Space Center Superior Achievement Award in 1970, the Navy Distinguished Service Medal in 1973, Navy Astronaut Wings, eight Air Medals, the Vietnam Service Medal, and the Navy Commendation Medal with Combat Distinguished Service in 1966. He received a University of Kansas Distinguished Service Citation in 1973 and was named Kansan of the Year in 1972. He was inducted into the International Space Hall of Fame in 1983 and the U.S. Astronaut Hall of Fame on October 4, 1997. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina on the shores of the mighty Yadkin River. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 369 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Apollo 17, Mankind's Last Giant Leap, and Ron Evans' Biography. (laughs) I hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. First, a very important announcement. Thanks to my web host, GoDaddy, who I wholeheartedly do not recommend using, I have to change my email address. So please update your records. If you need to contact me, use the address spacerockethistory at gmail.com. That is spacerockethistory at gmail.com. Our next episode will be posted in a couple weeks, hopefully by August 19th. If you would like to be notified by email when new episodes are posted, you can subscribe to the blog by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and typing in your email on the form. If you're looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 193 are available on the Archive podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on most podcatchers. Had several afterthoughts I was going to do for this episode, but we ran so long, I just hate to, to uh, do them now, or else we're going to wind up being over 60 minutes. I, would, uh, I will try to get some of them on the next episode. For those interested in the farm progress, I am discouraged to say there has been no work done for the past two weeks, so we're pretty much at the same place as last time. Okay, let's move on. Over the last fortnight, we had five contributions, and I would like to thank Matthew F. from Tennessee, who sent in another donation and is now at the starship level. 
Stuart L. from Texas sent in another donation and moved to the Orion level. Stephen M. from California sent in another donation and moved to the Gemini level. Peter B. donated at the Mercury level, and Dan E. increased his pledge on Patreon to the Orion level. Thank you very much. Our total Patreon donors are at 248, holding steady, thankfully. Our total donors for 2021 have reached 366, and our goal is 500 by the end of 2021. If you're enjoying the podcast without commercial interruption, please consider going to the homepage at spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. And now, here's Mrs. SRH with this episode's donor giveaway. Thanks, Mike. Hello, SRH friends. Now for the drawing. The winner for this episode will get the choice of a Space Rocket History magnet, or two stickers, or two static clings, or two holographic stickers, or the SRH archive magnet, or a NASA meatball sticker. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Colin Sipling. Colin Sipling, if you would email us spacerockethistory at gmail.com, tell us your address and your prize preference, we'll get this out to you. Remember, that's a different email address, spacerockethistory at at gmail.com. Sincere thanks to all 366 of you who have contributed thus far in 2021. My sources for this episode were NASA, the documentary Untold Story of the Last Man on the Moon, the Apollo 17 press kit The Last Man on the Moon by Gene Cernan, Apollo 17 Flight Journal, the Apollo 17 Mission Report, the Apollo 17 Timeline, the Internet Archive, Flickr, and Wikipedia. That is all we have for this episode. I will try to have episode 370 posted by August 19th. Stay healthy, everyone, and so long for now.